0: So let's begin the thought leadership. Our first session is one of the meta trends that we're exploring, how to provide the right regulatory frameworks for a thriving advice community. The session is time to rethink the rules. Our moderator is the uh, director of retail content at Connexus Financial, Matthew Smith. We're also joined by the Australian Law Review Commission, and we have Christopher Ash, the senior legal officer, And with some introductory remarks, it gives us great pleasure to host the Honourable Justice S.C. Derrington, who's the President of the Australia Law Reform Commission. And I understand that for questions, judge will suffice. It gives us great pleasure to welcome each and every one.
1: good morning, everybody, and can I express the si- sincere thanks of the Law Reform Commission uh, to Matt Smith and to Conexus for inviting us here to be part of your conference this morning. Uh, your input is incredibly important to us, and so we will be here for um, the best part of the whole two days because we really want to hear from you as to what your thoughts are as to how far we've got in uh, the review process that we're under... Taking at the moment and things that we have missed and things that might uh, be unintended consequences if we pursue particular lines of inquiry. We were given the terms of reference for this inquiry uh, last year and the focus is on simplifying the law within the context of existing policy settings. That means this is a technical inquiry. The government doesn't want us to inquire into how we can make the substantive law better. It wants us to inquire into how we can make the existing law better. So the terms of reference uh, give us three broad areas of inquiry. The first is the use of definitions in corporations and financial services legislation. And that includes the circumstances in which it's appropriate for concepts to be defined, consistent with promoting robust regulatory boundaries, understanding and general compliance with the law. Secondly, the appropriate design of legislative definitions and the consistent use of terminology to reflect the same and similar concepts. The second thing we're asked to inquire into is coherence of regulatory design and the hierarchy of laws. And this includes the circumstances in which uh, primary legislation, regulations, class orders and standards should exist. How legislative complexity can be appropriately managed over time. How best to maintain regulatory flexibility. To clarify technical detail and address atypical or unforeseen circumstances, an unintended consequence of regulatory arrangements, and how delegated powers should be expressed in legislation consistent with maintaining an appropriate delegation of legislative authority. Our third brief is to look at how Chapter 7 of the Corporations Act could be reframed or restructured. To ensure that we have a framework that is clear, coherent and effective, you'll note that the government likes triplets. Enhances the intent of the law, gives effect to the fundamental norms of behaviour and provides an effective framework for configuring how the law applies to consumers and regulated entities and sectors, and I'll come back to that because that focus on the word consumers is very important to the approach that we might take to Chapter 7, about which I know you're very interested. Now, um, it's a mammoth task that we have been asked to do. We are to report with a final report on the 30th of November 2023, but the government is expecting three interim reports The first, on Topic A, will be delivered in November of this year. The second interim report on Topic B will be in September of the following year. And then the third interim report will be in August of 2023 before we pull it all together in the final report. And so, on the publication of each interim report, that is the time at which we will call for formal submissions. But in the meantime, we welcome all informal submissions and discussions to inform what that interim report may look like. So the focus really is on complexity. And if we look at the existing complexity, we've identified five potential sources. And to understand complexity, uh, we need to understand where it is coming from. And only once we understand that can we determine which aspects of legal complexity might be necessary or helpful and which which aspects might be unnecessary and can be done away with or at least reduced. So, what the team at the ALRC has been engaged in doing is reviewing the literature on legislative complexity. And from that material, as well as consultations, we've identified some indicators of complexity that can in some way be measured or assessed. But these five indicators are not exhaustive. We've been using bespoke computer coding created by the younger members of the team at the ALRC who understand what that means, and they have been able to download, search, and analyse enormous amounts of material. This includes the entire Commonwealth statute book, hundreds of legislative instruments, over 10,000 individual relief instruments and more. And that quantitative analysis is just one of the ways that we've been identifying and measuring complexity alongside the doctrinal and conceptual analysis, which is largely left to the older folk. And what follows is a sample of the data produced so far addressing each of the five areas of complexity. And the first is what we call the regulatory ecosystem. As you're all aware, the Corporations Act is just one piece of a complex regulatory ecosystem in which countless actors interact. The Corporations Act alone regulates over 3.2 million companies, liquidators and auditors, over 6,000 financial services licensees, and over 60,000 financial services representatives. And this diagram only shows the regulatory structures that are in place. It doesn't attempt to show the diverse range of industry participants, investors and consumers. So you'll see that the green to the left of the screen is all about the external regulation. The blue next along is all the legislation, primary legislation, regulations. The darker blue or purple depending on your colour spectrum, are the legislative instruments or class orders that apply generally, and the brown are the individual instruments, and all of those interact, and we need to be conscious that if we tinker with any one part of this ecosystem, there will be knock-on effects for the rest. The first indicator of complexity is length but it's only one factor, it doesn't tell us everything. But in 20 years, the Corporations Act has been amended by 121 amending acts and increased from 500,000 words to over 800,000 words. It's the second largest Commonwealth statute and makes up 4% of all Commonwealth legislation. So the only longer act is the Income Tax Assessment Act. Now, the length, as I say, doesn't tell us all that much because, after all, the Corporations Act covers a huge amount, uh, a lot of ground, but length in the wrong ways can cause greater problems. So if we look at this uh, graph, as financial services licensees, you can proudly claim to be subjects of the second largest section in the Corporations Act the Section 911A obligation to hold a licence and exemptions from it, which has just over 2,400 words. Seven of the 20 longest sections in the Act, and those are indicated by the darker columns, are contained in Chapter 7. And this isn't surprising because, as we'll see in a moment, Chapter 7 is by far the longest chapter in the Corporations Act. The average section length in the Act is about 200 words, Section 911B about financial services representatives greatly exceeds that at over 800 words. And there are 59 other sections in the Act that exceed 1,000 words. So section length is a problem because it means the reader can lose sight of what the section is trying to achieve. Length in the wrong way also suggests a growing preference for detail and prescription in legislation. And what this graph shows is while the numbers of sections in the Act have increased by around 72%, the number of subsections, paragraphs, subparagraphs, sub-subparagraphs squeezed into those sections has increased by over 120%. And this level of prescription is a key focus of our inquiry. The second indicator of complexity is poor structure of legislation. Ideally, the purpose that an Act's components serve, for example, a chapter, should be clear. We should know what we will find in that chapter. But in the case of the Corporations Act, it's very far from clear. As you can see from the graph, the blue column, Chapter 7 is by far the longest chapter and makes up over a quarter of the legislation One of three chapters that combine to cover over half. And likewise, the parts that sit below the chapter level vary greatly in length, with some parts being longer than chapters. So, if part 7.9 alone relating to disclosure was its own act, it would be the fifth longest statute on the Commonwealth statute book. And this points to a lack of conceptual consistency undermining a logical structure to the act. The next indicator of complexity is the use of definitions. Defined terms and concepts are a third possible source of complexity and a large number of defined terms can be difficult for a reader to bear in mind. We call these the nested or the Russian doll type definitions. So you're sent down several rabbit holes before you find out what the word in fact means. There are over 1,400 terms in the Corporations Act that are defined or given a conceptual meaning. And although that's a large number, the data shows that it's not inconsistent with other statutes of a similar length. What is significant, however, is the Act's use of defined terms. For every 10 words used in the Corporations Act, about 2.35 are defined. So that means when you come across the term, every two to three words, you've got to go down a rabbit hole. And so while the Corporations Act makes up 4% of the legislation, it accounts for 10% of the use of defined terms across the entire Commonwealth statute book. The next indicator of complexity is what we've identified as conditional statements. Those are the sections of the statute that say, if this, then that, or though, except, and but. And all of these terms create forks in the road for you as you are navigating your way through the Corporations Act. And the the Act itself has over 10,000 conditional statements with almost 3,000 in Chapter 7. And what this graph shows is, by size of tile, the number of conditional statements that are referred to in the chapters uh, of the Act. But again, the data shows that the Corporations Act isn't entirely out of step with other legislation in terms of the number of conditional statements. But what the Act does do is regularly use them to determine when a rule applies. And this map, for example, illustrates the standard product disclosure regime. And what it shows is that if statements... Create cascading thresholds that need to be met before figuring out if the rule applies. And this is before you even consider the exceptions to the if, which contain additional conditional statements. So you may have gone through five or six levels before you find the exit ramp to tell you whether you need to disclose or not. The fifth identifier of complexity is the use of instruments. Now, these instruments are made by the executive arm of government, not parliament. So ministers and agencies such as ASIC and APRA. And they include regulations and the instruments that were formerly known as class orders that nevertheless have the force of law. And they form part of what we call the legislative hierarchy. And their use is not unusual and they serve an important purpose because they allow adaptability and flexibility much more efficiently than waiting for Parliament to amend the primary legislation. But you can see from this graph that the Corporations Act places seventh for legislative instruments made each year and there are currently about 430 in force. And this volume, spread across many sources, is itself a source of complexity but it's their use that causes the greatest concern. And that's because the Corporations Act is unique in its extensive use of legislative instruments that in fact modify the operation of the primary statute. So around 105 legislative instruments notionally amend the text of the Corporations Act, but you can't go to the Corporations Act and know that it won't say that. So, the specific way that the legislation applies is hidden. Nevertheless, it applies as though the statute read as this amending legislative instrument says. They set up parallel regimes or parallel versions of the legislation that are not visible on the face of the legislation and may have considerably modified the law You might think the Corporations Act says something is black. By the time you've worked your way through the legislative instruments, you will find that, in fact, it is white. And that is not good for the rule of law. So three initial observations that we can make about legislative instruments in relation to licensing is that regulations currently contain a large number of exclusions from licensing, some of which only apply in particular circumstances. Two. ASIC-made legislative instruments often provide conditional exemptions from licensing, which have the effect of setting up an alternative regulatory regime applying a subset of obligations that commonly apply to licensees. And third, relief from the disclosure regime often seems to be a product of its high level of prescription Legislative instruments are also used to include or exclude matters for the purposes of the whole regulatory regime. And this map illustrates the numerous exit ramps created by the exclusions spread across the legislation, the regulations, and other legislative instruments. The yellow boxes show you the way to get to the exit ramps, but you're a long time looking for those exit ramps. So thus far in this inquiry we have conducted over 70 consultations and we've achieved broad consensus on simplification, increasing navigability and standardised definitions and concepts. We do plan to hold another round of consultations before the first interim report is due on 30 November of this year and then as I said we will call for formal submissions. But what we want to hear from you today is where are the real pain points for you in your businesses and what you think that we can realistically do to improve navigability and simplification of what will necessarily always be a very complex area of the law. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Is that 10?
2: Perfect. Thank you, Justice Derrington, um, and welcome everybody. Look, uh, the next three sessions are designed to be highly impactful. So the idea is we um, have this discussion about the from the law fraternity, and then the next session is um, uh, industry um, speaking about you know their challenges in navigating the Corporations Act, uh, and then we're going into a workshop where we're then going to collect all those ideas, um, you know, uh, synthesise them, and then hopefully deliver them. Um, later in the day to Treasury. So, the the, the idea of this conference really is to um, obviously, from a, a formal perspective and an informal perspective, create impact to um, you know utilize this really important moment in, in history. I think, which is uh, you know when uh, you know at the very beginning of the um, the advice reviews and the law reform reviews to um, to try to get industries input in a really really constructive way. So, thanks so much for for joining us here today. Um, how do we get here? Judge, um, how did we get here and, and and why are all these legislative instruments and class or, orders, many of them redundant from what, what you just explained, um, wh- why can't we just go with the Corporations Act?
1: It is a really important question and it's good to reflect on how we got here so that we can avoid making the same mistakes so that 20 years down the track my successor isn't sitting here saying God knows what they were thinking um, back then. But You've been through a number of financial services reforms in general, corporate law reforms, and everybody looks at it it with the best of intentions. But over the last 20 years, what's been clear is that things have just been accreted to the Act without much thought as to what the regulatory structure should be. Once upon a time, someone thought that removing the Securities Act and putting it into the Corporations Act was a great idea. You'd have a one-stop shop for everything. Um, But, as the complexity of the industry has changed, as the products have become uh, more sophisticated and difficult, there's got to be a way of dealing with all of that. And the other point, really, is the lobbying that gets done behind the scenes by particular elements of the industry. And none of you will probably know who has caused these particular changes to be made to what was originally a fairly good and straightforward report. But as the politicians are lobbied and minor changes get made, it never comes back to the people who drafted the report to say, well, is this consistent with with what you thought was going to happen? So we just end up with a mess.
2: Yeah. And please, Krish, we're going to bring you into the conversation as well. Um, But I know we have, uh, you know, an esteemed um, delegate at the moment and we'll go to questions in a moment. And I'm looking forward to hearing in particular from uh, Bernie Ripoll, uh, who's in the audience, Father or Father, we're talking about some of the lobbying and perhaps bringing in some colour there. Here or around the edges of the conference is absolutely fine. Um, it, but it seems to be the way in which the, the industry is regulated as well. I presume, um, you know, ASIC and, and, and the regulators bring in class orders or, um, you know, interpretations that they then mm-hmm. release as guidance. Um, does this mean, you know, the work you were doing perhaps, could that um, lead to a different way in which the, the, the industry is regulated?
1: Uh, it could. Uh, You could decide that you want to be individually regulated rather than regulated through uh, the larger corporate structures. Um, But the work that ASIC and APRA does is a reflection of the need for flexibility and adaptability. So there are trade-offs to be had uh, on both sides of it and and how you want to be regulated I think is a very important conversation. Um, I know that from the press that I now get every morning, thanks to where is the editor? <laughs> is there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, there was someone else who was on. <laughs> on as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that increasing professionalism is something that's very important to you. And if that's the track you want to go down, you've got to be careful and thinking about the unintended consequences of doing that because you may well find yourself in the same position as the lawyers and the doctors in that you will owe fiduciary obligations and your whole structure of giving advice will change radically. Now, they're things that I think you need to think through very carefully before you settle on a final position to give us as to how you want to be regulated.
2: So what are the consequences around that Becoming a fiduciary or... Being well,
1: if you're becoming... If you eventually owe fiduciary obligations, as you as you do if you act for and on behalf of another person, then it's not just that you must act in their best interests. You must act only in their best interests and not in your own interests. So it's not just that you must manage conflicts and avoid conflicts. You have two primary duties, not to put yourself in a position of conflict with your client and not to profit from that position. That doesn't mean you can't earn a fee, of course, or lawyers charge fees for their advice. But nonetheless, they are in a fiduciary obligation with their clients. And you could say that this is part of the problem that you're having at the moment with pricing. Uh, People do have to pay significant fees to lawyers because these are the obligations that lawyers owe them. If you go down that track, you'll be able to charge more, will the market bear it? That's a matter you're going to have to think about.
2: Chris, any further commentary on on that? Because I did want to talk a little bit about, I think you're you're talking a little bit about principles and um, prescription, and I want to go down that path a little bit, but anything further to add?
0: Um, I'd just say that I think the work that we're doing could facilitate either that outcome or equally Um, it could facilitate the current approach whereby licensing doesn't have to apply to individuals. And so just by way of example, one of the ideas we're exploring is what's currently financial product advice simply sits underneath the overarching term financial service. Um, Now, there's a whole lot of regulation that only applies to financial product advice. And so there may be one way to simplify the legislation, simply by pulling out what's financial product advice from that, service bracket and making it clear the obligations that apply to an advisor or the obligations that apply to a licensee. Um, And I think that's what um, more open-ended principles-based legislation would Mm. allow you to do as Mm. well as better structured legislation. Judge, do you think the industry is ready for a principles-based approach
2: based on what your understanding of the industry is? I know um, we just had uh, FASIA uh, within the uh, last 18 months, uh, release you know standard three, and I think that freaked a lot of people out. Um, you know, no conflicts. Uh, it, it seems to be to me to be the the, the code of ethics is more of a principles based approach. Um, uh, then y- you've also got um, you know during FOFA, um, you know all the the steps were ha- added into safe harbour. That seemed to me to be an example of the industry looking at principles, looking over the edge of principles, and perhaps stepping back. Um, do you think the, re- the industry is ready for principles?
1: I suspect that much of the industry is ready for principles, but I suspect that you have a divided industry and some will not be quite so comfortable with being simply governed by a code of ethics and being told to work it out for yourselves. Um, some people like being able to rely on very prescriptive content, but in The interesting thing um, about a webinar we did recently with practitioners from the UK, Singapore, Hong Kong and New Zealand was that the UK practitioners said that they always found themselves going back to the 11 principles that are specified in the handbook when they are in a, a tricky situation and they need to work out which line they should cross and which one they shouldn't. And the thing is, You are all uh, fully cognizant of the principles that exist in the Corporations Act and I can go through section by section and tell you which principles they reflect. Uh, To my mind, the legislation just doesn't set up front and centre. These are the six principles by which financial services practitioners should be guided. Instead, you've got to work that out for yourself by going through each of the sections. So our present view is that even just articulating the principles in a section on their own Mm -hmm. would go some way to helping you navigate that.
2: Yeah, okay, great. Um, A lot of this is perhaps coming from the Hain Royal Commission, I presume. Is that what you're using as a bit of a blueprint for the work you're doing? How do you use the Hain findings and reports in the work you're currently doing?
1: Well, one of our... In our terms of reference, um, we are specifically tasked to look at that report and we are specifically asked uh, what we should do with the six norms that Commissioner Hayne identified. Now if I go through Chapter 7, I can find an articulation of each of those norms, particularly in Section 912, Capital A, all of them are reflected there. Everyone who complies with their obligation is complying with those norms. But they don't necessarily know it. So if they are working out whether they want to push the envelope a little bit, just going to that section doesn't help because it doesn't help you really think about, well, what are the values and the objects that this legislation is designed to achieve? And it is about having an honest and efficient market that is nevertheless flexible and adaptive to changes in modern practices.
2: Mm-hmm. Now think of your questions and um, uh, just uh, g- give me um, maybe one or two more and uh, you, you press your microphone and that's the way you can, um, is, that, is that right? Yep. Um, but judge, and, and so partic- particularly um, pertinent perhaps for this audience is uh, Hayne's interpretation of uh, licensing. He looked a little bit perplexed, from what I could see, at our licensing or the industry's licensing regime. That that, that um, somehow we, we, you know, um, representatives need to go through, you know, a licensee in order to be regulated. Did you did you read into, um, you know, his perplexity about that situation as, wow, this needs to be changed. Is that your view?
1: I'm not sure that it was, wow, it needs to be changed, but, wow, it's something you should think about. Okay. Because if you are one step removed from owing the obligations, it is easy to say, well, actually, someone else is going to worry about that for Mm. me. Um, I don't have to be quite as personally responsible for everything that I do. And I think that that can be a concern in some parts of the market. And I think that's what he was seeing.
2: Um, questions from the floor? We've got, uh, we'll, we'll extend it a little bit. Uh, we've got seven or eight minutes for questions. I've got plenty more.
1: <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> uh, I,
2: I, I did ask a little bit about ASIC. I'd like to come back to that, because from what I can see, the guidance that ASIC provides seems to be adding that complexity from my view. Could you perhaps dissuade me of that if it's if that's, that's, a, that's the incorrect interpretation? And, and should we want to? I'm
1: going to, uh, I'm going to ask the ASIC person to. And, and should
2: we want to go down the path of cleaner, crisper, you know, legislation with fewer and fewer class orders and uh, legislative instruments? What did you call them? Forks in the roads and condition yes. statements. How does that? What does that mean for the way in which the industry perhaps is regulated in the future?
0: Well, I, it it doesn't necessarily mean that guidance is. To be done away with. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's an acceptance that there has to be a balance between principles and some level of detail where it's necessary. And one of the um, one of the key problems, which will be the subject of our second interim report, is where that detail should go, um, because it needs to, there needs to be some level of flexibility allowed, as we pointed out. But the way that it's currently structured, where you have these notional provisions set up, um, for example, there's a there's one notional. Sorry, there's one legislative instrument which notionally amends a regulation which notionally amends the statute. So, in order to understand that, you need to consult those three places and read them all together. Now, that's, that's obviously not desirable from a legal design perspective. Um, and so, what having more principles-based legislation might allow you to do um, is to do away with much of, much of the need for those complex exemptions and simply allow the rules to be stated in an appropriate way.
2: have got a question here on table 10.
0: Uh, Tony Gillette from Retirewell Financial Planning in Brisbane. Um, it seems that the complexity that we've got today has largely resulted from Parliament passing the legislation and then passing over to ASIC to then fill in the gaps with a whole raft of you know, regulatory guides and um, class orders and so forth and in doing so they have gone a lot further than was intended by or or within the original legislation and I wonder if we move to a principles-based, a more principles-based, whether or not we're going to end up with the same problem we're not solving anything, Uh particularly if it's left in the hands of ASIC. Thanks, Tony.
1: It, it's a very good observation uh, and we get some inkling that that happens from the English position where they've moved to a principled base uh, version of the primary law in their act, um, but the handbook, I'm told if you print it all out, is six feet tall. And that's where you find all the detail. But it's different there because the Financial Conduct Authority, in fact, has, in effect, legislative power to make these uh, prescriptions. ASIC does not have that. ASIC has certain rulemaking power, and some of uh, of this inquiry is looking at how that power can be appropriately circumscribed such that there is ministerial or parliamentary oversight over the instruments that they make. We've got to be careful with guidance because guidance is not the law, but we know that people use it as the law. If a matter comes to the court, I'm not interested in what the guidance says, I'm interested in what the legislation says and what the regulations say. So there's got to be a much closer nexus between the guidance and the primary law. And I was reading your, regulatory guidance instrument in relation to uh, general and personal advice and scaled advice and it seems to me that all the real decision making power has been taken away from you as professionals and it would be very easy for people to just fall back and write pro forma letters um, that are in the ASIC guidance and I think that's a risk. So I think uh, some real thought has to be given to the extent of the powers that ASIC retains and maintains.
2: I know we have another question here, but in a principles-based world would that be more cases coming to court then to to trust, to to, um, allow them to to find precedent?
1: What we would hope is not to change the the, the wording and the concepts that currently exist and that have already been legislated. We are very conscious that we should not be changing uh, well understood concepts that have already been worked out by the courts it is not our aim to promote litigation
2: do you want more precedents is that kind of what you're saying in a way um, you know rather than relying on the interpretation created by regulators for for the for the courts
1: to no i think i want people to be able to act in accordance with the principles and values and the law as it is stated mm-hmm. in the legislation and that it shouldn't be so complex that you can't find the law. So we've got to get that bit right first. And once we do that, the guidance, reliance on the guidance should become less necessary because you will be able to work out what the law says and where the limits of the law is. And then if you need those limits expanded, that's when you go to ASIC and you have a conversation about whether your particular circumstances are so unusual and unique that you need some particular form of relief. We have a question over here.
3: Yes, uh, Darren Steinhardt from Infocus Wealth Management. Um, it's the first time I've actually seen how complex our laws and everything are that we work under with those diagrams. So it's actually a little bit sad, <laughs> sad seeing those. question I've got is you've got a, um, a, a time frame, which is for the final report. Got some interim uh things coming out um and the objective at the end of the day is simplification and kind of like a set of rules we're, we will know and can follow but in the interim we've got a rapid um, <coughs> role of legislation continuing to come out day after day week after week month after month are you going to get to a point in november 2023 where the plan is good but it's already been complicated and kind of derailed by what's happening between now and then
1: that, too, is an excellent question. Uh, can I say that this, uh, the terms of reference for this report and the way that they have been structured, some might say slightly oddly to ask us to look at definitions first, um, is because we are working very closely with Treasury. And so we are engaged with them, I would say, on a weekly basis. And as we know that they have another review on financial services regulation next year, we are working with them to make sure that nothing we do is going to be overtaken uh, by the raft of legislation that you say is coming through. And part of the method in the madness of the way these terms of reference are structured is that if we can get general consensus on some of the low-hanging fruit at least in relation to definitions, for example, do we need to really define the word for, um, Treasury can start Using those definitional structures through the new legislation that is coming through. So, we are trying to coordinate quite closely with government and make sure that we don't end up in that situation in 23.
2: Time for one more question um, right here. Matt. Yes?
3: Yep. Oh, good night. Paul Adding Davis from Advice IQ. Look, if I think everybody here, probably without exception, <laughs> wants to see financial advice become a great profession. Professionals are individuals, not firms. And so the lens we have to look through to how we get to the end game has to end up with individual professionals. Mm. Um, So however you approach the law to get there, uh, there is no other rational end game from from my perspective.
1: But that's really not a matter for the law. That's a matter for you (laughs) as an industry, to create yourself as a group of professionals in a professional body with accreditation And suitable ethics training, suitable educational requirements, the same way as the lawyers um, organise themselves in a self-regulated system. And if you can do that, then the law is likely to follow uh, what you have done as an industry group.
3: I think it deals with the question of the licensee versus the individual, though. um, Well, perhaps
1: it's because you're not quite there yet, that we're not, that the law's not quite there.
2: Great, and um, we've got the Licensee Leadership Forum later this afternoon. Perhaps that's a burgeoning representative group um, coming through. Um, question right here in front.
0: Uh, thank you for the work you started. Uh, daunting <laughs> piece of work. And I'm glad it's you, not me,
2: um, on a personal level. But one of the, whether we have prescribed or principles-based or some form of mix, where it, where it manifests itself often at a licensee or an individual professional advisor perspective is where
0: a complaint or otherwise has come to bear. Um, In your body of work, are you looking at how bodies like um, complaints, authorities
2: are interpreting, whether they be principles or prescribed statutes? Um, Because where we find ourselves at the cut and thrust is, is having to deal with something that's conceived from a practitioner's perspective and interpreted from a complaints authority which seems to be to gain peace rather than
3: rights? Uh,
1: the work that the team has done, I think, involves 100,000 AFCA decisions that have come through. in yeah, yeah, AFCA determinations that have come through, and we're certainly uh, looking at that. Anecdotally, we hear what you're saying, uh, that fairness is being interpreted cause peace to break out, Uh, but the data doesn't support that. So it will be interesting uh, when we release that data. But I have a concern about those sorts of complaints committees as a lawyer. They operate in much the same way as arbitration has done to the detriment of the development of the commercial law, but that's a whole other thesis for another day.
2: (laughs) Uh, Another quick follow-up, and this will be the last one. Uh,
0: just following on from that, Philip Wynn Profile Financial Services. With complaints, most of the time they're dealt with at licensee level before they actually become an AFCA complaint. And that's because it's so complex with the, the fear of the interpretation. So you settle. So the data perhaps conflicts with what Matt said because it doesn't actually end up in a data point. Mm. Um, that would be an interesting thing to talk to the licensees around what they actually settle before it gets to AFCA because Matt's point is very true.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
2: that's great. And and I believe you're around the conference today and and tomorrow as well. Tomorrow
1: tomorrow morning at least, yeah.
2: Really great opportunity and thanks so much for coming on to the licensee summit this year. Pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everyone.